Hi, this is Steve Robinson with another in a series of podcasts from Sadie Records. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, a nonprofit company based in Chicago. And we're here today to talk about a new album called Hand Eye, and it's Sadie number 162. And it features a performance by none other than Eighth Blackbird. And we're fortunate to have with us the pianist from Eighth Blackbird, Lisa Kaplan, and Sadie founder and president, Jim Ginsburg. Lisa, welcome to the Sadie podcast. Thank you. So we'll begin by asking you just a very general question. Eighth Blackbird is celebrating its 20th anniversary. How is it formed? Eighth Blackbird was formed when we were students at the Oberlin Conservatory in Oberlin, Ohio. And the original members were put together by Tim Weiss, who at the time and still is the director of the Contemporary Music Ensemble and the Wind Ensemble at Oberlin. And Tim Weiss was incredibly passionate and enthusiastic about new music at a time when perhaps that wasn't the case in other institutions. And basically he asked the original six members if they wanted to sort of be part of this offshoot ensemble of the new music ensemble that would come in at 8 in the morning and rehearse at 10 o'clock at night. Some pretty hard literature written by new composers. And so we all thought that this was going to be really fun. And that's kind of how it started. So Tim conducted us at the beginning of the whole process, and then we quickly got rid of him and decided we would be uh, <laughs> an unconducted chamber ensemble. And he was thrilled. He's like, great, I have more, more time for other things. <laughs> so it was founded as a contemporary music ensemble. Right. And have you been with the group since its inception? Yeah. So there are four founding members that remain. Myself, Matthew, our percussionist, Nick, our cellist, and Michael, our clarinetist. How has the group evolved over 20 years? Not so much in personnel, but in style and approach and thinking about new music and presenting it. I think we made some very good decisions early on that have translated into helping sustain the organization over time. One was that we decided to pay ourselves a salary when we were grad students, actually. Uh -huh. It was like $90 a month for each person. But we decided, you know, that when you have gigs that are all spread out over the course of a year, you don't want to say, oh, well, like in March we had all of these gigs and so we got paid, you know, lots of money. And then in December we had no gigs and we got paid no money. And so I remember that being kind of like a real moment, you know, that you, you sort of decide you want to try and make a go of something and like make a living at it. And even though you're paying each other something very small, you're still getting a check every month. And now, of course, we pay ourselves a larger salary than $91 a month. You're up to 95 a month now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. 96, actually. 96. Oh, oh. <laughs> but I do think we made decisions early on that we didn't even realize would sort of help with our sustainability. But that was one of them. Another was just really rehearsing the music until it was really, really good and deciding that we wanted to start making recordings of that music so that we would have a record of it, basically. You know, that you had worked this hard on these pieces and you played these pieces with conviction and you wanted everyone else to be able to hear them. Everyone being the ginormous new music community that there is. Actually, that's a thing I think in Chicago really exists now after having lived here for almost 16 years. It feels like the growth of new music in Chicago. I've really felt that, being a member of a group myself and just feeling it within the community. Now, you've been in residence at various places too over those 20 years. 
We have. We've had a longstanding residency at University of Chicago, also one at the University of Richmond in Virginia. And this year, we've really had a wonderful time being artists in residence at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. That's been very eye-opening in terms of having a gallery space within the museum where we rehearse in front of the public and they're exposed to our creative process, how to interpret a piece of music. Actually, today I was there this morning and somebody somebody walked by. This is, had not has not yet happened. And he said, can you play something by Katy Perry? <laughs> <laughs> and I was in the middle, actually, of playing. We were like having a rehearsal with Glenn Kochi, actually. And it, it was just very funny. I said, yeah, we don't. Well, this is not for taking requests. And he kind of was disappointed. He said, oh. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that could be an interesting exhibit, though. <laughs> Some features, I believe, of 8th Blackbird since the beginning, in addition to performing conductorless, regardless of the complexity of the repertoire, have been uh, performing from memory mm-hmm. and often with movement. Can you talk about how that came about? Yeah, so that's a good question in terms of how we've evolved. I remember when we were students at Oberlin, we applied to do several chamber music competitions, and we had been playing this piece by Michael Torkey called The Yellow Pages. And it was a short five- or six-minute kind of minimalist-inspired piece. And we played it very well, but we were also sort of like, we didn't know how to take it to the next level. And I remember that we had a coaching with one of our mentors who was on the violin faculty, still is, Greg Fulkerson. And I think he was sort of kidding, but he said, you know, guys, this is really good, but why don't you just memorize it? Like, that would just take it to the next level. And we were kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we're like really earnest, good kids. (laughs) And so, yeah, we thought we would try it. And I don't know, a week later, we came to rehearsal and tried doing it by memory. And it was like really eye-opening just because you could interact. First of all, you just get rid of the music stands. Then you can like interact with everybody like in in a much different way. And you realize you're not tied to a certain position anymore because there's no stand there. So that was sort of, I mean, we didn't do extensive movement for that short piece, but we just, you know, we kind of clumped together in groupings that made sense like musically based on what was happening in the piece. And it felt really, really fun. And that was how it started. But memorizing contemporary music, I mean, there are conductors who always use a score for a classical concerto. Solos doesn't. It's inconceivable to me that you can do that, (laughs) frankly. I think it's about the dedication of doing enough score study so you understand how your part fits into the whole piece. And then it actually isn't that hard. Once you've done enough score study and you sort of understand what that's like, it's not difficult to take it one more step. Eighth Blackbird. Unusual name. Where did it come from? Our founding violinist, Matt Albert, he was also an English major at Oberlin. And when we were looking for a name, he happened to be studying in his class at the time the poetry of Wallace Stevens. So every day we threw out different bad names like, how about tastes like chicken or red wheelbarrow? (laughs) And then Matt came in and said, well, you know, what about eighth blackbird? And we said, what is that? So, of course, it comes from Wall Stevens's poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, which basically takes a blackbird and puts him in all these different beautiful environments in 13 short stanzas. But the eighth stanza of that poem is, I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know, too, that the blackbird is involved in what I know. And so it had 
those musical references about accents and rhythms and seemed appropriately enigmatic for a new music group. And, of course, there's actually a piece based on the poem on your debut album. Yes, exactly. So Matt's father, Tom Albert, wrote us our very first commission, I think, in 1997. And we didn't pay him, (laughs) but we did play the piece a lot and record it. So it worked out okay. (laughs) The album is called Hand Eye, and the concept is extremely unusual. I'm not sure I've ever run across an album that has all of these elements in it. A collaborative of composers, Sleeping Giant, six composers, Mm -hmm. who each chose works of art from the Frankel Foundation collection Mm -hmm. and were inspired by that art to write a piece. And they've all come together in this album called Hand Eye. And I just want to read this quote from the Wall Street Journal and Alan Cozen, who said, Curiously, as diverse as the inspiring sculptures, digital pieces, and paintings are, The musical responses, though composed separately rather than collaboratively, have shared elements, not least, and I love this phrase, a restless, stylistic omnivorousness that make them seem like interlocking pieces of a puzzle. Good description? Yeah, I think so. I like that. I think Alan totally understood what was happening. So let's delve a little bit into the album itself. Now, this is a podcast, not a video cast, so people won't be able to actually see the paintings. Just to clarify, they're not all paintings. In R- fact, right, most of, of them are. Right. They're works of art, not all paintings. In fact, any? I don't think actually any of them are paintings. Per se. But one is a drawing, one is... We can talk a little bit in depth about some of them as how they relate. I want to go back and explain how the commission came about. So... Andrew Norman, who's part of the Sleeping Giant Collective, approached us about doing something together. This was many years ago. And Matthew and I were in New York, and we had lunch with Andrew. And in the process of that lunch, we were talking about, well, it would be cool to do something with you guys as a collective, but what would be the point of that? Why would we do that? And then we just started brainstorming, sort of like, well, there's six of them, there's six of us. And we said, oh, that's interesting in itself. So what if you each picked a person from the ensemble to focus on. Not necessarily in a concerto sense, but you would use the clarinet as your inspiration or you'll use the flute, you know, whoever. And and I said, and I don't think you should give each other those assignments based on what makes the most sense. You should make it different somehow. For instance, Timo is a wonderful pianist. And I was like, don't let him write the piece that's inspired by the piano. So we sat talking about this idea for a while and thought that that was an interesting idea. And the way the six of them in the Composer Collective works is very collaboratively and they share music as they're writing with each other. And we said, that's great. You guys should find ways, maybe subtly, maybe sometimes not so subtly, to weave in each other's ideas into the entire work so that it's not just like six separate pieces on a program, but it feels like a cohesive whole. And in fact, when we perform the piece, there's no intermission and it's just a 75-minute experience, basically. So you perform it as a single piece. As a single piece, right. And that's been really interesting because sometimes people are like, well, I don't know which composer wrote which piece sometimes, and like I got lost. And because Rob Hanstein, he wrote a three-movement work rather than just like a single movement. So people always get lost once we play his piece because they're not sure when it goes to the next piece. And I love that the composers don't care about that because that's not what it's about for them. It was about creating this larger whole. And I felt like when we were having that lunch and we all realized that that was like a goal for both of the groups, it just seemed like it was a very natural kind of a collaboration. So then 
the Frankels came into the picture. Maxine and Stuart Frankel, who we were connected with through the Great Lakes Chamber Music Festival in Michigan. We've been connected to the festival for about 20 years. It's a festival we've been going to every other summer since we were students. (laughs) So we had been introduced to the Frankels through that festival, and they were interested in commissioning this whole work for us. They happen to have an incredible art collection, one that, well, when I first visited their collection, it was the overflow that was in their office space. And then I had the opportunity to visit their home, and I could see why they needed this <laughs> this overflow space, because every available space in their home is essentially used for art display. Ceramics, installations, paintings, drawings, like everything. I mean, it's really incredible. So... When we saw their art collection and they said, well, how would you feel about inviting the composers to come visit our collection and choose anything out of the collection that they're inspired by to write their piece? Like, how does that sound? And we thought, well, that's great. I think that inspiration can come from really absolutely anything at all. And that they just wanted to open up their collection it was a really unique and interesting opportunity. And so the Sleeping Giants took a tour of the collection and picked out pieces? Yeah, and we were there as well. So it was like all 12 of us were there, and that was really nice. One of the things that's very cool about the way Maxine and Stuart have decided to curate their art is that there's no little descriptive— there's nothing that tells you next to the work who made it, and you have to ask. And she knows everything about all of them all of the different artists in the collection. It's very cool because it doesn't bias you towards, oh, that's a Jackson Pollock. I'm going to pick that. You don't know who it is. And they have some very, very established, well-known artists in their collection, but they also have people that you haven't heard of. And it's nice that there's complete objectivity about it because she doesn't tell you unless you ask who it is. Talk about how you integrate how it works in the performances since, of course, you don't include the images while you're performing. Sometimes you include other images. I'd love you to talk about that. But the actual images are not there during the performance and they're not in the CD booklet either. So I'm actually curious uh, what motivated that choice and how you'd choose what images to use instead of the actual images when you're performing. We wanted all of the pieces to completely speak for themselves and I think they absolutely do. We have put in program notes, there is a page on our website, so we've put the URL so you can go to that page and look at the pieces of art if you want to. But we didn't want it to feel like it was programmatic, you know, like, oh, here's this work of art, here's the piece of music that goes with it. Because I think inspiration is something that's very personal and unique. Obviously, as an individual, you bring all of your own experiences to your life and how you live it. So everybody views in this case, a work of art in a completely different, unique way. So Deborah Johnson, who did this live digital video for the produced version of this show, she went and visited the collection, of course, as well. And she found a way to interpret the pieces of art in a visual way that was connected to the music, but with her own individual stamp on it as an artist herself. So I don't feel that we're channeling the pieces of art through the music in a way that is necessarily tangible to everybody. But I think the composers did a really amazing job taking their interpretations of the pieces of art and putting them into the music. And it's very subtle in some of the pieces, but very overt in others. 
It seems to me that the album builds in intensity, so that the first piece, Checkered Shade by Timo Andrus, it's a kind of shimmering quality. It's a very quiet, kind of mysterious piece. Talk about that a little bit. Starts that way, yes. I think Timo's piece goes from micro to macro, so that the beginning is very detailed and kind of shimmering and quiet, and it grows in orchestration until all of a sudden you're kind of like, whoa, how did we get here? The climax of that piece, I always feel, sounds incredibly orchestral, like there's only six of us playing, but it feels like there's ten or something. I think Timo really catered to the strengths of Eighth Blackbird's ensemble playing. At that climax, there's a lot of different rhythms happening, and it's quite complex. And I remember looking at it and being like, Timo, this is hard. And he was like, yeah, haha, I'd never write that for orchestra, but for Eighth Blackbird, I know you'll actually be able to play it. <laughs> I was like, everyone's always doing this. <laughs> I've known Timo since he was like 18 years old, so a long time, and he knows our playing really, really well. Some of the other composers, like Jacob Cooper, for instance, we only met when we decided to do this collaboration, but Timo and Ted and Andrew have known for a long time, and that's one of the things I love about this job is that you grow up and have this whole community of peers and colleagues, and those are the people that end up collaborating with you. And so it really feels like these pieces, yes, they're wonderful Puro sextets, but they're also very much for Eighth Blackbird. I love the description in the program notes of Andrew Norman's piece entitled Mine, Mime, Meme. He said, it's inspired by Random International's installation piece, Audience, in which a field of small, mirrored machines rotates to follow the movements of any viewer that steps into their midst. And he says, in my three short pieces, the cellist finds himself in a sonic space where everything he does is mimicked by the other five instruments. That art installation is really something because these little mirrors, they're probably like five by seven inches or something on these little motoric bases. And if nothing's activating them, they kind of all just interact with each other and turn. They're little, they're like these little people. And then as soon as somebody steps into the space, they all immediately turn and look at you. And 
it's the it's so strange because there's something whimsical and kind of cute about it, but it, there's also something very weird and creepy about it, especially because all of their faces are mirrors. So Andrew did a really interesting job interpreting that artwork. His piece is essentially he wrote a line for the cello, and it's a game of follow the leader. And so we all follow at different paces, but there's an order to how you do it. So flute is the first person to follow, and then clarinet, and then violin, and then piano, and then vibraphone, and changes it up a little bit but it's fun it's kind of like a game and it's different every time quite an abstract piece and i called it pointillistic and there's a lot of pizzicato in it yeah there's a lot of different little special effects in it it's true The next piece by Robert Hunstein is called Conduit, and it's in three movements. And again, it's kind of interactive. The installation was, let me quote a little from the notes, Conduit takes its cue from an interactive sculpture by digital artists Zigglebaum and Quelo in their piece entitled 640 by 480, The Human Body Merges with Computational Process. And in this piece, he's trying to evoke, as he says, the man-machine synthesis. Rob talked about his piece in terms of how we as humans interact with our own technology, our phones, our iPads, our computers, and particularly our phones. So the names of the movements of his piece are touch, pulse, and send. So touch, it's literally about how you interact with your smartphone and one thing causes a whole reaction to something else. It's a very clever piece. I think his musical language is very immediate to the listener and it feels like he really used our ensemble playing being one of Eighth Blackbird's strengths he really played to that strength in a great way so it's terrifically fun to play that piece and very satisfying it's in three movements uh, as you said touch has this bass drum accenting its way through it right and a jam block also there's like a low high thing that is always happening in that
The second movement, back to kind of a shimmering feeling, yes. as in the first piece on the album. That's the pulse movement. He took the vibraphone, piano, the clarinet, and the violin, and he gave them all different polyrhythms to play. So it's like seven against six, against five, against four, and then the flute and the cello together play these very long, high notes kind of over that. And it really transports me to a very meditative hypnotic space. And it's very beautiful to play that movement in particular. All those odd rhythms, very easy to memorize, I'm sure. No, that is actually easy oh. to memorize. <laughs> and, and then the third movement, the movement marked send, quite different in feeling. It's a little rough-edged and the tempo's a little quicker. Yes, yeah, very fast-paced and, again, a sort of about when we talked about send, you know, that's what you do when you send an email or you send a text. And all of that data going out into the world and being received by somebody else's phone. It has a great epic crazy ending and appropriate for the piece as a whole. The next piece is called South Catalina by Christopher Cerrone. Again, a piece inspired by Random International. What is Random International, by the way? That's the name of the company that's created a bunch of these different art installations. They also did mine, mime, meme. I was not familiar with them until after experiencing those installations, I went and looked on their website just to see what they were up to. And they do lots of different kinds of things, largely installations. He says he's inspired in two different ways, Chris Cerrone. First, uh, the piece is an interactive sculpture by the London-based collective, Random International, called Swarm, uh, responds to sounds with a blast of beautifully asynchronous lights. And he says, the first time I saw the work was at the entrance to the gallery, and he immediately had the idea right then and there that it would inspire a piece of music in which sharp and loud attacks in the piano and percussion would inspire a flurry of wild and improvisatory gestures from the rest of the ensemble. That's totally what it sounds like. That's inspiration number one. <laughs> but he's also then inspired by the lovely sunrises and sunsets in Southern California. Right, yes, and that's why he named it South Catalina. His piece to me is very bright and sparkling, and you think about when you're driving and the sun kind of blinds you for a moment and sort of dances on the windshield and the sunlight has a dappling effect and the percussion and I play these crashing chords 
largely it's sort of like a progression in E major. And it was inspired, the piece, by the clarinet. So the whole thing is based on this hymn that the clarinet plays in multiphonics, which is essentially playing two pitches at the same time, which is very difficult. And Michael does as if he could do it in his sleep. The whole piece stems from that chorale and evolves out of it. Ted Hearn's piece is based on a Robert Aronson woodblock print. It's a portrait of Tyrone Robinson, who assassinated Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panthers. And superimposed on Robinson's face is a praying mantis. And then it says, bye-bye Huey, and that's the name of the work. And Ted's piece, he called it bye-bye Huey as well, When he was in the gallery visiting the collection, Maxine told us that the artist, Robert Aronson, said the reason that he put this praying mantis on the face of this assassin was his way of talking about when a people eat their own. And there was this whole idea, I think, with the Black Panther movement of futility, trying to get a point across and not having that be heard. And Ted took that concept and made it very palpable in his piece in terms of there's a lot of muted piano notes that are then I put my finger on the string and keep moving it on and off the string. So there's this idea of you hear something is being stifled and then you hear it a little bit and then it's stifled again. And there's that kind of musical concept that runs through the entire piece in all the various instruments. And I think it's very well connected to the piece of art. But I don't think anyone needs to know that either. I think as a listener, his piece is incredibly electrically charged and very riveting and interesting. So you don't have to know that that's the story behind it. But definitely I feel that when I'm performing the piece, emotionally, that's something I think about. 
There's a moment in that piece which sounds something like like a chase scene out of a really dark movie. Right. Uh, was there anything special about that moment for you? So much of the piece is so motoric, but also kind of exhausting. Physically, it's hard to play, and by the end of it, you feel really tired, or I do anyway. And somehow the physical part of playing it is very connected to the emotional aspect of what it feels like to keep trying to say something and feeling like you're never being heard. So it's, in a way, for me, both physical and emotional. The jazz solo at the end, or neo-jazz as I feel it is, Ted and I talked a lot about it and he said, you know, it's sort of like that time when you're just like alone, playing, completely not self-conscious at all when you reveal your true self. And he wanted that to come out of all the chaos that comes before and that that moment is a genuine catharsis of that piece. And I I love it because I think it's so weird If you hear the piece a lot of times, you think, oh, this makes a lot of sense. But on a first hearing, often people are like, what is happening? What is this jazz solo at the end? But the more you listen to it, I think the more it makes sense. And it's very detailed in terms of the notation. Every staccato, every dynamic. I worked with him a lot on it, and I did some things a little bit differently than he had originally marked. But it's supposed to feel very organic and kind of improvised. And he was very successful with how he notated that so that it sounds that way. I remember the biggest challenge was, I think that the notated tempo there is quarter equals 56, which is quite slow, and there's a lot of space at the beginning of it. It's a really, really slow groove. And when I first was learning it, I said, oh, my God, I can't ever play it this slowly. And now it can't be slow enough. So (laughs) it's, like, interesting how it evolves. You said something interesting that you play things a little differently than he originally wrote them. Did he change the notation or or the markings at all in response to what you said? Yeah. I I mean, that's the other beauty of working with living composers is that when you get together in the room with them and something maybe sounds a little bit better in a way that they hadn't thought about, then they just can change the score. So that's nice. (laughs) Well, you're kind of part of the compositional process. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny. With Ted's piece in particular, I remember that he was sending material to me 
Ted's piece, if, I, if we didn't say this, it was inspired by the piano. And uh, I remember he sent me this whole thing not long before the piece was actually due. And he said, what do you think of this? Is this playable? How do you feel about this? And I went through it and I was like, yeah, this is cool. I'll be able to do all of this. And I think I'd got back to him in maybe a week after he'd sent me that email. And then he responded, oh, I threw that all away. I'm doing something else now. <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, okay. You know, it's every, everyone has their own process. Speaking of the compositional process, in between the fifth and sixth pieces, there is this crossfade that's actually a collaboration, right? Right. So there was huge discussions about the order of the pieces when we were putting this together with the composers. And we always knew that Jacob's piece had to be last and that it was going to come out of Bye Bye Huey. And they had this idea that this very weird neo-jazz solo at the end that there would be a huge surprise of sound and interruption, very, very loud, that would, over the course of about two minutes, decrescendo, get softer and softer, and suddenly reveal the beautiful vibraphone that's very soft and still, that's the beginning of Jacob's piece. So we sort of knew that that was always going to be a part of the whole work. Up for discussion was what the order of the first four pieces would be. But we knew the Ted's piece would be fifth and Jacob's piece would be sixth. Working on that crossfade was also the bane of our existence <laughs> in terms of figuring out how it was actually going to work. And we went through so many versions of it. And Ted sending us, try this! And then we would record it on our iPhone and like send it back to him. And then Jacob would chime in and say, well, what if we try this? So we finally arrived at something that works which is essentially just largely improvised based on a few little cells that they wrote out that kind of are derived from the material from Ted's piece. But I think it's very effective because I love that there's this last chaos that occurs before the underlying, very peaceful beginning to cast. It really is basically two minutes of going from chaos to order, right? Right, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. The last piece on the album by Jacob Cooper, Cast, draws its inspiration from Leonardo Drew's paper casts of everyday objects like dolls, trinkets, and kitchenware. And he says it aims to reflect the sense of absence and nostalgia that he sees in Drew's work and to provide an oral analog to his artistic process. 
The piece is very much about setting up this kind of beautiful counterpoint between very soft piano chords and then this underlying 16th note texture that the vibraphone plays. And that just goes on for basically 13 minutes. It gets slower and slower, and finally the vibraphone drops off. But over the course of that, the quartet plays these very weird gestures that sound... One sounds like a squeaky wheel turning that has one spoke that isn't quite right, and that's actually the violin playing something. And there's interesting and beautiful whistle tones that the flute plays. But nothing is rhythmic in their parts, and I love how he says that, that it reflects absence. It's kind of a beautiful image. And then, of course, cast is perfect name for that. You've been listening to a collage from a very unusual and wonderful album called Hand Eye featuring 8th Blackbird. And each of the six pieces on this album were inspired by works of art in the Maxine and Stuart Frankel collection, which is housed where? In their house? (laughs) Well, yes, in their house and then in their overflow space of their office in Troy, Michigan. All of this music is contained on a new Sadie Records release. It's number 162, and you can find it on their website, which is sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, where you can find the whole catalog for this wonderful not-for-profit label. And the other voice you've been hearing, in addition to Lisa, is the president of Sadie, Jim Ginsberg. And Jim, on the website, all of the albums are there, well over 160 albums at sadierecords.org. I think it's about time we mentioned who the members of this ensemble are. Tim Monroe Flute, Michael McAferry, clarinets, Yvonne Lamb, violin, Nicholas Fotinus, cello, Matthew Duvall, percussion, and the person who's been guiding us through this collage, the pianist of 8th Blackbird, Lisa Kaplan. So the album was recorded with Tim Monroe, but of yes. course, the new flutist in the group. Yes, Natalie Joachin is our new flutist, and this was actually the last project that we did with Tim on his last days with the ensemble, we recorded this album. So most or maybe even all of the public performances have been with Natalie, right? Yes. We premiered the piece with Tim, but all of the subsequent performances have been with Natalie. What kind of adjustment was involved? (laughs) Well, part of the reason we hired her is that she was such a natural fit to the ensemble. She's approached everything with incredible dedication and passion, and she just plunged right in. And she's wonderful and brings a great, strong personality to the group. 
You said, Lisa, that the way the group performs, standing mostly, and not looking at music kind of liberated you in the sense of movement. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a kind of performance art, especially in your MCA residency, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Is there a difference between traditional concert performances and performance art in the way you approach it? It's an interesting question. I feel like when one says traditional concert performance, you think of people sitting in chairs playing from music, the way you think of an orchestra doing that. But it happens in the chamber music world too. And I just, you know, we've been playing standing up for so many years that now if we play seated, well, I always play seated, but (laughs) when everyone else sits down, it feels strange. It feels weird. I guess I've never thought of what we do as performance art, but I've felt that it's a way to engage an audience, especially with some of the choreography that we've done. It feels like we're just visually highlighting what's happening orally in the music, and we're just showing the relationships in the music to everybody, mostly who's hearing the pieces for the first time. So... Yeah, I guess it's a kind of performance art. It's much more performative than what an orchestra does, which isn't to say that conductors aren't wildly charismatic and look at Dudamel, but it's different because he's leading an entire group. And with Eighth Blackbird, it's very clear that we're doing this as a group, but we're also all individually performing as well. You mentioned orchestras. I was going to ask you, have orchestral musicians or even chamber musicians, but who play in a very traditional way and play classical music, ever come up to you and say, you know, you really look liberated up there and I'm jealous? <laughs> sure, I think we've gotten that reaction. I'm sure we've had the other reaction. Just sit down already, which is fine. We're very passionate and very involved in the interpretations of the pieces of work. We're often working very closely while the composers are writing the pieces and not even finish them. And so we feel very invested in the whole process. So we want our investment and our passion to be felt by an audience member hearing the music for the first time. So part of that in this visual world that we live in is seeing a performance. I'm not suggesting that we're hamming it up or doing things that are disingenuous to the music, but I feel like the way I perform is simply an extension of my own individual personality and We all in the group have different personalities, but everybody's performance personas are amplified. And I think that that's something that's very palpable from an audience standpoint. So in that way, I guess it is performance art. Can you explain the nature of your residency at the MCA? The residency at the MCA has really been about the creative process, the interpretive process, and putting that out into the open for everybody to see and to be a part of. When you go to a performance, you're seeing the end product and the end result, and you don't necessarily know how they got there. And so what's been unique to sort of be able to be in a public space is to show people what the road is like to get to an ultimate final performance. It's very interesting to me. Some people come to the museum and literally sit and listen to our entire three-hour rehearsal. Other people come for five minutes and ask me to play Katy Perry. (laughs) 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 But some people find it fascinating. Other people find it less interesting, but it's there to see. It's there to witness. One last question, two actually. It's been a pretty big year for 8th Blackbird. (laughs) Uh, Congratulations on the Grammy. Thank you. And also the MacArthur Award is very unusual. I think it's the first year that they've given these awards. They gave it to about 14 organizations. Actually, I think it started, maybe it started in 2007, but this is the first year that they've given them exclusively to Chicago organizations. It's a huge honor. It's a huge feeling that you can take your organization to the next level because really these awards are to help with your effectiveness as an institution 
and, and help sustain. So it's not as if you can just take the money and divide it up. They want you to take the money and turn that into more money that will sustain the organization at the next level. And it's very meaningful to us to be given that kind of opportunity to push ourselves to do that. And it meant you were able to boost your salary to 100 a month? <laughs> right, yes, yeah, 101. Now, your previous album, Filament, just mm-hmm. won a Grammy, and in fact, it's 8th Blackbird's fourth CD album in a row to win a Grammy. Yeah. In fact, the one before Filament titled Meanwhile actually won two Grammys. <laughs> How's that impacted the group? It's so funny because every year that we've gone, I'm like, we're not going to win, we're not going to win, and then we do. And I'm kind of like, what? This is crazy. <laughs> but it's a huge honor. One of the things that a Grammy really does is it gives you a kind of people who know nothing about music, the Grammy, that's something that they understand. So if you win a Grammy for an album, people all of a sudden sit up and pay attention. So I feel like it can give you a lot of exposure to a lot of people who might not necessarily ever listen to your stuff. But even when something is just Grammy nominated, people like sit up and take notice. So to win is a huge, huge honor. And I'm really proud of the fact that we've won and have always been highlighting on our albums Living Composer. And I think that's very hopeful. And we should mention that these albums are winning in categories that are not devoted to contemporary music at all. That's exactly. they're, they're winning in chamber music and small ensemble categories uh, where you're competing against music from Renaissance onwards. Right. So in that way, I'm very proud that they're being recognized because that's exactly true. And the category is always incredibly competitive. That's why I'm like, oh, we're never going to win, you know. (laughs) So it gives you this kind of clout to the universal musical world, which is really kind of amazing. So what's ahead for East Blackbird? What new adventures lie ahead, both in terms of projects and performances? We're very excited to be working with David Lang on a big new piece that will premiere in the fall. David is somebody that we've known for 20 years. He's written a great piece for us already, but we wanted to collaborate on a big project for our 20th anniversary. So I'm very excited about that. And we're doing a very cool project with Dan Truman and Irla O'Linnard. Irla is an amazing traditional Irish folk singer, comes from a long family lineage of singers. And Dan teaches at Princeton. He's a wonderful composer, very innovative using electronics, writing his own software to make instruments do things you didn't know that they could do. And he also plays the Hardanger fiddle. So we're doing a project collectively where Irla sings, Dan plays the fiddle together with us, and it'll be an evening-length project called Olagon. And Paul Muldoon, who's an incredible poet, wrote the poem that's being used as the text that Irla sings. And I believe that's planned as a recording project That as is well. planned as another CD <laughs> recording project. Indeed. Thank you. Well, Lisa Kaplan, thank you very much for spending some time with Sadie Records on this podcast. We've been talking with Lisa Kaplan, who's a member of 8th Blackbird, about this wonderful new album called Hand Eye, which features a collaboration with the compositional collective called Sleeping Giant. And it's on Sadie Records. It's number 162. And you can find it in a store near you or going to sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E. And thank you all very much for listening. Sadie Records is a non-profit recording label dedicated to producing classical recordings of the highest quality featuring outstanding musicians from Chicago. 
Sales of CDs and downloads cover less than 20% of our expenses, so we rely on your charitable contributions to fulfill our mission. Please visit sadierecords.org, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org, for more information on how you can support Chicago artists through Sadie.